I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of How to Be a Grown-Up, The Sisterhood, and my very first novel, Insatiable, A Love Story for Greedy Girls, is coming out on the 11th of February 2021. Insatiable will be available online and from bookshops. There's a limited number of special signed editions available to pre-order from the Waterstones website for your book listeners. Huge thanks to everyone who's pre-ordered. It's the very best way for you to support the podcast. We're also thrilled that so many of you bid for a chance to appear on the podcast in order to raise money for Fair Share with Books to Nourish. We'll be allowed to announce the winners soon and we'll be telling you when you can listen to their episodes. For now, please donate to Fair Share if you can. We'll include a link in the show notes or you can text the word LOVE to 70630 to donate £3. Now, on to today's guest, the journalist Patrick Brain's essay collection, OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea, is a book that I have not been able to stop talking about and forcing upon people ever since I encountered it. It made me shriek, roar and sob over the course of a frenzied afternoon of reading. He writes with devastating accuracy about love, grief, dreams, human strength and frailty. I can pay no greater compliment than this. He writes like a reader, so I was desperate to talk to him about books. Here he is, talking about Laurie Moore, fantasy realms, graphic novels, snarky reviewers and strolling players. Has your reading changed much over the last year? Do you find it easier or harder? Are you reaching for more books or a different kind of book to get you through? It has definitely changed. At the at the early parts of the pandemic, I read, like, I'm a real fan of short things anyway, but I think lots of people, I think I probably read more this year, but at the start of the early parts of the lockdown, um, I, I was kind of intimidated by largeness. So um, I read loads of really short things. I've, I'm, you can't see, but I'm surrounded by piles of books that are here to prompt my memory because my memory is so often awful about what I've read. So I read things like, and more recently I read Hilary Mantel's Mantelpieces. Oh, the best but name. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> I wish I had a name like Mantle. Because <laughs> um, then I just, like if I was called Mantle or Sideboard or something, I'd, I'd get instant book deals for great things. But um, that, that her stuff is great anyway. But it was the shortness. It's the fact that their essays really, really appeared to me. And I read loads of essays. And essays is a funny thing because obviously on the one hand, there's things like uh, my book or 
um, Emily Pine or, or things like that. And then the other end, there's just like authors collections of book reviews, which I also really like. Um, Laurie Moore, I'd pick this up in the brief period when you could um, see what can be done. It was like the brief period when I could go to bookshops and I kind of picked it up again because it's a book of her short criticism. And it was like funny and and smart and easy to read. Um, and I, I felt in lockdown that was easier to handle. I also loved, I, I feel like doing it, if I ever go back to college um, to do a PhD or something, I do it on short books and how wonderful they are. Um, and I have always loved, I love people like Muriel Spark who can like cram everything into 200 pages or less like I reread the Primal Mystery in Brody and I couldn't believe it was like 112 pages because it in your memory it feels like an epic. When did you first read Miss Jean Brody because I read it I think possibly when I was only slightly older than the you know the girls and Miss Jean Brody made the the exact impression she'd probably hoped to make on me as a reader. Yeah Whereas I read, I actually read it for the first time only a few years ago. I discovered Muriel Spark a few years ago, and I think she's a, like she's probably my favorite writer at the moment. I read, I went through, I go through these phases of picking up classic authors I've never read and going, okay, let's let's now have my judgment on this. Um, and I think I read that because I'd watched the film. It was on some night, and the film's great, but the book is quite different. Um, and I read Memento Mori after that. Um, which I, I think is a brilliant book. But what's amazing in the prime of Miss Jean Brodie is she's kind of like, it's re- watching it and reading it as an adult. It's like the anti-Dead Poets Society. Mm. It's, like, it's like, you know, yeah, let, let's take this idea of like a romantic, inspiring teacher seriously. And let's see what that would really be like. It's almost like speculative fiction. And what that really would be like is they'd be almost a fascist, you know, this big romantic hero. And what's amazing in the book is I think if I had read it as a teenager, I'd probably have been more inspired by Miss Jean Brodie. Whereas I think what Muriel Spark is trying to do in the book is she's trying to unsettle you with Miss Jean Brodie. She's like a, all of the, like, it's basically a book about how you shouldn't trust charisma, which is a big theme of mine anyway. Like, I really... Whenever somebody is really charismatic in a room, my brain starts going, what are they trying to do to me? What are they trying to do? <laughs> and, and Miss Jean Brodie is just this, it's both an excellent character study and it's also a kind of epic tale crammed into 112 pages, which is why I'd love to do a PhD about short books. It's like the, I can't remember who said that thing, um, I'd write you a, a short letter except I don't have time um, <laughs> with, with her books I just feel like why would you go beyond 150 pages if you if, if you simply couldn't if you sim- the reason people do it is they just can't do what Muriel Spark does um, uh, and Memento War is kind of a similar kind of book uh, so yeah no short things I'm going off on a tangent about short things I read Lanny by Max Porter which I also loved because that's like I, I, I've got it here somewhere like that was a hundred and I'm going to flick through and see how many pages. That was 210 pages and uh, big spaced type pages. It feels like a a beautiful novella. Um, but again, there's an awful lot. It's almost like the more words you put in, the less epic things feel to me. Economy and the, the power of books. I agree with you. There are definitely... It's an awful thing to admit. 
I'm not sure I've ever picked up a really long book and well, hey, a thousand pages <laughs> weighs the same as a bag of flour. Yeah, I read when I was a teenager, I read, and I'm still a big fan of sci-fi, but when I was a teenager, like my first big epic reading experiences were uh, The Lord of the Rings and The Stand by Stephen King. They're the first books I remember secretly staying up all night reading. And when you're a teenager, I guess... Like, I, I sometimes do this. It's terrible to admit in a book podcast, but when I, I'm advised to read a book and I pick it up and it's, like, really long, I actually go, oh, no. Whereas when I was a teenager, my instinct was, oh, yes, more of this world. And, like, I felt the same about the C.S. Lewis books. Not that they were long, but that there was loads of them. Mm. You know, um, the, the Narnia books. Um, and in recent years, I've read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy, classic sci-fi and fantasy that I missed. And if there's a difference between those two genres in terms of length, sci-fi is better short and there tends to be great novellas in sci-fi. Fantasy, they're like door stoppers and it actually does get insane. I read a, um, a recent enough fantasy book. I won't name it because I liked the author, but uh, I read and there was like a bit where they go to yoga. <laughs> like, And it's kind of fantasy witch yoga. And I'm like going, this is like, because I think that consumers, it's interesting the readers of those books want more and more of the world, even if it's kind of banal, which is why I, I couldn't get through Game of Thrones because I realised that as a reporter, I've covered council meetings. They had literal council meetings in parts of Game of Thrones and they weren't that much more interesting than discussing the parking on, you know, off O'Connell Street in Dublin <laughs> and council meetings I'd seen. And I kind of realised that, oh, my God, like, it's to do with what people want from their fiction. And some fantasy readers just want everything. They want the whole world. I want to know how. I want to know how the councils work. I want to know how the street cleaners work. Which, when you get into someone like Terry Pratchett, is actually really interesting because he's a deep thinker mm. and philosophizer about these things. So when he goes to the high and low of Discworld, it's amazing. And he but really sees it's such a great opportunity if you're going to write jokes to be really, really funny and take what is funny about every day and put it in a new world and make those observations. Yeah. But I don't th I've never read the Game of Thrones books, partly because I think I'd need some jokes if there's going to be that much book. And I don't think there are any jokes. No, no. Like there's I mean, occasionally in these fantasy books, I, I read the first two or three. I have an awful tolerance for 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 kind of fantasy and sci-fi and that I, I would stick with them a lot longer than I stick with kind of other kinds of books. And one of the things um my wife Anna really drilled it to me years ago, because I used to be awful for thinking that you had to be completely faithful to one book at a time. So, you know, I, I actually had this reading rut in my 20s because I thought if you picked up a book, you had to finish it. So if I couldn't get through a book, I'd keep with it and I'd have it at my bedside and I wouldn't start another book and months could pass and Anna's kind of amazing at reading like three or four books at once and when I realized oh you can do that you're not breaking the book rules <laughs> I, I start loads of books now and I probably finish being fair to myself I probably finish two-thirds of them but because I'm reading three or four it means that I can go from like I tend to be reading like a sci-fi romp some sort of non-fiction thing and maybe a more serious novel at a time except maybe often I'm not reading the more serious novel <laughs> and I'm kind of but it means that you can go from one to the other and I read a lot more as a consequence and I also stop more books like I kind of get there's a lot of books in the shelves behind me that 
I started and realised, okay, life's too short and I, maybe this does pick up after 200 pages, but I don't know if I'm going to stick around for 200 pages of Waffle. Um, and the exception is because I think they were the genre I really got into, if you, like when I was a kid, where, is sci-fi and fantasy because I always have hope because I love other worlds mm. and I love depictions of other worlds. And I always have hope it's going to get good. And particularly if it's like a big classic of the genre that I haven't read, um, and what can be amazing about those in sci-fi is sometimes they're beautifully written, but often they're A, they're clunky as hell and B, have some dodgy politics in that you kind of you're kind of reading along and this is grand. And then 200 pages in something like horrifically racist or sexist happens and you go, OK, I can't I can't read the end of this now. This is just too, too much. <laughs> I wanted to go back to that Laurie Moore book and talk about yeah. criticism because um I understand you are a uh, a reviewer of books as well as a, a writer and reader of them. Did you see, I think Laurie Moore wrote a review of normal people, but I was a bit stunned because she was a bit sort of sneery about millennials. And I thought, you know, if not by birth, surely like spiritually and thematically, all Laurie Moore writes about is about, you know, things that face millennials about, you know, loneliness and identity and creativity and friendship and fragility I guess one of the things I find really interesting as I get older is people you put on a pedestal I love Laurie Moore and I love her short stories um and I love I I read her novel the one with I'm really bad at titles the one with stairs in the title a gate at the stair yeah it's and it's a brilliant book and it it does that thing which I really esteem, which is she manages to move from really funny, almost satirical observation to being kind of deeply moving. And Mm. it's a very sad book as it goes on. Um, And when I read a book like that by someone like her and I am really moved by it, I kind of put these people up onto like this amazing pedestal. And I think what that review shows, because it's an amazingly written review of normal people, um, is something that has always been a, it kind of, it relates to a bugbear of mine, but um, that they're just good writers. They're not genius. Like they, they're not brilliant at everything, and they, they're not going to get everything right. And I, I, there was a period, particularly for some reason, during the run up to the Iraq War, when like media were constantly having like novelists on to discuss it, and they'd start with as a writer or something, and you'd go, that's no more to me. That's no more legitimate than starting with as a accountant or as a plumber <laughs> or like it's just because you're good at writing books it means you're good at shaping your thoughts and your ideas it doesn't mean your thoughts and your ideas are always amazing I think what was fascinating I think there was a culture clash in her review there and it was interesting I think she could have written that review 10 years ago and it wouldn't have made such a trace mm. but you now it gets launched into um the sensitive world of social media and lots of millennials read it and go, this is really unfair, Laurie, and I love you. And why did you write this? I'm actually Generation X. So as a Generation Xer, I just read that and I kind of slap my hands together and go, ha ha, the boomers and the millennials are fighting again. <laughs> um, I think there's a proxy war. There's a fake war going on between boomers and millennials. And I think what's interesting, in, in another 10 years, we'll read that, Laurie, more of you and all the heat will be taken out of it. And, you'll, and maybe she'll have some points and maybe she won't. But at the moment, it's like, I guess it's we're at an interesting point with like criticism and things like that. Anything can go viral. Mm. Um, the great thing about books, in a way, is that they don't go viral in the same way a piece can or an essay can. Or actually, uh, was I was reading Hilary Mantle's Mantle pieces that we mentioned earlier. The one about Kate Middleton 
and Anne Boleyn. And like that became this big tabloid sensation. And it's just like this really interesting intellectual take on the monarchy. And I just re- I reread it in mantelpieces. And, you know, the female body and how it's used in culture as it represents the monarchy. But because it's the modern age, it gets to the Daily Mail and then it becomes an online thing and everyone goes crazy. And these are the best of these essays are kind of bigger than their age. Yeah. They're things that you're meant to be able to pick up in 10 years time, at which point we won't remember any of those battles and we'll be coming with a whole set of new assumptions and possibly a whole set of new things to be annoyed about. I think you're right. And I think it's it's really hard now, the white heat of the internet. And it feels like a lot of the level of concentration of attention is intense in a way that we've not maybe had before. And and most things kind of avoid the concentration of attention. And then in various ways, um, like, I found it really interesting. And again, I'm going to forget the name of the author, the, the cat person story. Mm, Kristen Ripien. Yeah, so that was a New Yorker story, cat person. And then it became it, it became almost like a think piece online the way it was discussed and and actually in fact some people seem to think it was memoir which is another interesting thing I think that's happened in recent years is like everything has become personal writing in in the eyes of some readers so people were treating it online like somebody had just written a I don't know, like a piece for Jezebel or something. Yeah. You know, like a, then there's like a big battle and people take different positions on the story and some people go, it's, you know, uh, lots of people jump on board because it's kind of felt perfect for the Me Too age. And then other people, there's an inevitable backlash where someone goes, why I hate cat person. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't think it does anyone a service or like I think it does the story a disservice and it does the writer a disservice because it's not being considered as a story. It's being considered as a political talk point. Now, it, it did her a great service in that. I'm sure that book sold buckets. Um, and I haven't read I, the cat person. I was I thought was okay. I wasn't mad into it. I read one of her other stories I quite liked, and I'm sure the book is great. But the point is, the point I'm trying to make is just how it was discussed had mm. almost nothing to do with it being a short story. And in a way, you know, I think it's a great compliment to what she had written that it was something that felt so. You know, it was convincing. Uh, you know, it, yeah. it felt real and authentic and it really had that voice and she'd really mastered that that voice of the age. But also that that wasn't fair in terms of the way no one could sort of see that. Because I did, I saw a couple of people sort of say, well, I could have done that. I'm like, mm, I don't think you could have <laughs> you done. And I, did, and I think of the writers I love, the ones who are very, very easy to read. And I think, and I don't know if, you know, because you've written, I love your book and I've been talking about it on this podcast, um, like a mad, mad fangirl, but like, I have to read this, but that anything, especially anything that's funny or anything that feels very close to life, people think, oh, it's really easy to make people feel that way, to, to put people, and it's, it's far from easy to make an observation that feels both unique and universal. I, I think so. Like, readability is something I find really interesting. Like, um, normal people, which I haven't read, I read Conversations with Friends, and I really, really liked it. I've yet to read Normal People, because I watched the show, and then I thought, can I read it now, or do I have to wait here? But um, when I read Conversations with Friends... It just, you're so in the world, you zip through it. I felt the same about um, Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan. Oh, I'm desperate to read that. I've not read yeah, that yet. Yeah, it's really good. It's kind of funnier than, like, I think 
she's unfairly been, and I'm doing it now here, she's been unfairly compared with um, Sally Rooney, but I think she's a very different kind of writer. It feels like, I'm jumping around, but Exciting Times feels like some sort of mix of Jane Austen and Adrian Mole, which I loved. It was like a kind of uh, slightly heightened, quite wry look at the life of this young woman um, in a kind of relationship, trying to decide between the man she might love and the woman she might love. And it's just her kind of zipping through her life and the internal, it's like an internal monologue or something kind of like Adrian Mole, but it's got the kind of social moray stuff that, you know, Jade Austen has. Um, and it's so readable. Like, it's one of those books I read over lockdown in, like, that's what I was looking for over lockdown was readability. I did not want to rejoice, you know. <laughs> Patrick, um, I am sold. Exciting times. I will take 10 of those. Yeah, that sounds great. I, but with her and Sally Rooney and um, and Laurie Moore and people like that, the readability is very structured and not, it didn't come, well, maybe it did. Maybe there's such geniuses that did come really, really easily. But I suspect that that requires more work than, you know, like there's certain kind of heightened writing I find just really difficult to get through. And I, I have never really thought about it too much, but every now and again, I pick up a book and I read a page and, and my brain goes, that was hard work. You know, whereas there's other times you pick up a book and you're 20 pages in and you go, that was really easy work and I'm really enjoying myself and I don't know why I, I am one of these people that doesn't think that uh, reading should be that difficult you know like when I was a kid the reason I loved reading is because I didn't even think about it I pick up a book like I'd, we used to go to the Newbridge library in Kildare when I was and then earlier in Cork when I lived in Cork we'd go to the library and I kind of randomly pick books and you'd have I'd a voracious appetite for reading and it was because um, children's writers and now young adult writers know that readability is very, very important. And I went through, there's a couple of reading droughts I had in my life. And one of them was in my teens when you'd kind of run out of road with kids books and any of the adult books you picked up just seemed boring. And that was largely a readability issue. I now realise that, you know, writers of kids books and writers of young adult books know about readability, know that this has to be fun. It should be fun. Why shouldn't it be fun? And some r- r- adult writers are like going, no, i got to make my readers work. And I don't appreciate that. I don't want to work. <laughs> if I want to work, I'll do work. <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember the books that got you out of that reading drought? I remember key books that were just, that I loved. Like the first, like as a kid, then the C.S. Lewis Narnia, book, Narnia books, um, I picked one of those off the shelf and I was just, I, and randomly, I think it was Prince Caspian, which I think is the fourth one oh. in the sequence. I read that first by accident. You know, I was in the library and I was young. I was six or something. And I then was instantly sold and wanted to live in that world, which is the still the thing I think, I think your first really significant reading experience is what you're trying to get back to every time you pick up a book. And with the Narnia books, I was in that world I wanted to be in that world. I dreamt about finding a, a wardrobe that took me to a world like that. I read loads of books with talking animals that slightly disappointed me because I wanted more when I ran out of Narnia books. And as a kid, you just reread them over and over again. It's really fascinating to me because I'm um, I'm I'm what you'd call a, a literary fiction, a literary realist skeptic, right? I kind of, I need, when I read a book that's kind of uh, a work of literary fiction rather than, 
kind of funny fiction or genre fiction, I kind of raise an eyebrow now because, um, like, for example, Muriel Spark, I almost don't think is a realist writer or, or like, because I think it's almost it's heightened. There's almost something fantastical or in, in how she writes it. I read um, Fleischman is in Trouble and I loved it, which is the much I'm just I'm giving myself some outs by starting with like literary fiction I actually read. But what I found interesting when you're a kid is does I'm not sure if literary realism exists in the world of children's literature in the same way as it's so central to kind of adult literature. But I was actually just going to say um, about Jacqueline Wilson and how her books are so bleak and I loved them and millions of kids love them and they're you know they're really really funny yeah. and vivid and then I thought oh no because like Tracy Beaker is waiting for a film star mum to come up and if you're an adult reading that to your child you know that's a fiction if you are six and reading it you believe in Tracy Beaker's film star mum like Tracy Beaker does so yeah maybe that's yeah. not you know even though there's lots of very difficult real stuff in that book it's not real at all or like oh god did you have that at school um they're like pre I suppose for me it's like pre GCSE like oh you're going to read all of the books about nuclear war every writer <laughs> has done a really true book about the aftermath of nuclear war there was a lot of books about nuclear war was it um my brother in the earth Is brother in one? the land brother in the land and Zachariah, I remember God, and the cover was all like greens and greys with like the nuclear symbol like there is nothing I want to read less why did they do that to us? Is there a similar thing about climate change for kids now where they're just going, you know, you might all be dead in 10 years. Whereas when we were growing up, there were so many books with quite dark themes um, about the end of the world. Um, Adrian Mole, I read quite young, but is that a, that's not a kid's book. Though. That's an adult book that some people read as a kid's book. I guess that is probably not, because it was a I think a bestseller and again I love those books and that is always always what I turn to in times of crisis it's the the Adrian Mill omnibus but and actually it's a shame because when I was a kid I did not get so many of the jokes because I was like these seem like perfectly reasonable thoughts to have and things to write down that that was a book that there's kind of key books that kind of blew my mind and opened my mind and the Adrian Mill book was definitely one and it's definitely had a huge influence on me because I or the the first Adrian Mole book I read I think when I was young there was the diary of Adrian Mole age 13 and three quarters and then there was the second one growing pains of Adrian Mole so I'd read those in my teens and again I think it was the the humor allowed me to take in the sadness because there's a lot of I read that's a book I reread every 10 years or so the first one in particular I think I think I've I think Anna has all of them somewhere here but I have two ragged copies of The Growing Pains and And they um, were the Adrian ones Mo- you first read that you've kept yeah I still have them here somewhere <laughs> in the shelves behind me um and what I loved about going back to them is like you said there's lots lots of stuff I missed because there's a lot of very adult sad things happening in his life but when you're young you take his side and you take his version of reality as reality whereas when you read the book you realize he's an unreliable narrator and I actually think what I um what I kind of imbibed from that book that stayed with me unconsciously was the idea that we're all unreliable narrators that what's beautiful and it's kind of a beautiful thing like what Adrian Mole is doing is he's got this slightly pretentious version of himself that he hides holds on a pedestal 
But you can feel tenderly and compassionate about that reading it as an adult because around him is kind of quite sad stuff about his family, his family breaking up and being quite poor. And, you know, his poem about waiting for the gyro, which is really funny, but is actually quite a sad poem when you read it from a certain perspective. And I think as a kid reading that, I think I read it when I was about 12. And I think, so not around the same age as him. And so I think what I got from that was this sense that everyone is kind of an unreliable narrator and that's okay because there's an inherent kind of sadness and kind of irony and humour in that, that there's a difference between how you perceive yourself and the reality. And she does that so well in the Adrian Mole books and so tenderly and kindly to him. Um, and it's only when you go back and read it as a, well, I went back and read it as a grown up several times now, that you see all these kind of touch points where his version of the world, which is both very humorously and very sadly juxtaposed, juxtaposed with the reality of his world. Um, yeah, I don't know where we started with this, but that really, that was a book that really changed my brain, I think. I, and there's certain things when I write, I go, okay, that's directly from Adrian Mole. Because I think that's what we do, isn't it? When we are young readers we really we want to see ourselves and it's not even that a book has to be real in a way that reflects our circumstances but just someone who's got that really singular and immediate voice where we have that point of connection yeah and there's there's some projection because obviously in kind of big stories of daring do and you know lord of the rings you're you're kind of when you read that as a kid you're going i'm i am frodo i'm going to be brave and i'm going to throw the like and there's there's a lot of kind of self-willed projection where you're going I can be a hero too you know so there's a there's this kind of interesting thing about how books guide you and I guess the complexity then of uh, when you read as an adult you're less likely to go I'm going to be the brave person at the center of this book and go what would I like I read so much I read a lot of dystopian post-apocalyptic stuff because I just I can't get probably because we were bred into it by those nuclear holocaust books as kids <laughs> I just can't get enough of it. And now I kind of read them and go, I would definitely be cowering, scavenging at the edges of this society. I, I, my, I start fantasizing, you know, I start fantasizing about my post-apocalyptic survival start strategy. And it's not being Rick from The Walking Dead. It's like, at best, I'm like somebody's sniveling sidekick or I'm, I hope sometimes it could be a bard or something. You know, maybe I could write songs about this thuggish person to make them seem like wonderful and then that's how I'd survive post-apocalyptically. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. We'll be back to Patrick soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, Winter by Ali Smith. It's Christmas time, and Sophia is stuck in her Cornish mansion, furiously resisting the world and the intrusion of her family, but she's got a floating disembodied head for company. And her estranged son, his pretend girlfriend and her passionate rebellious sister are all on their way. This book just kept surprising me, robust and then delicate, beautiful, brutal and constantly shifting. It's a weird book for a weird year. If the idea of rereading a festive favourite is jarring at the moment, I think this might match your mood. It's the second of the seasonal quartet, but I loved it in spite of not having yet read the first autumn, although I'm going to be reading that very soon. Winter by Ali Smith is published by Hamish Hamilton and out now. Now, back to Patrick. Have you read any uh, dystopian books recently or contemporary things? I read, I like I said, I kind of go back to sci-fi stuff. I'm kind of looking at the piles about me. Um, I read this uh, really interesting Gene Wolfe book because Neil Gaiman mentioned it in a in an interview at Ricochet it's called the book of the new sun it's again it's another case of me going back to some classic sci-fi I didn't read when I was younger Um, and this is actually a really good one and it's set in a world it's unclear but thousands of years in the future where the sun is kind of fading and it it reads like a kind of medieval fantasy book, but actually, as you go through it, you see the remnants of all this old civilization and world that's still there. And it's kind of weirdly poetic and odd. And he doesn't... One of the problems with bad sci-fi and bad fantasy uh, is they over-explain. There's too much exposition. Mm. And what I like about that book so far is that... Um, and it's a big epic as well. Like I was talking about short books earlier. But this is like, I think the two volumes of it come to like 1,200 pages or something. But in, in in this book, he doesn't really explain anything. So sometimes stuff just reads like poetry. You're going, OK, I might understand this later in the book. But at the moment, it's just this weird evocation of oddness that he's experiencing. Um, so, yeah, that's post-apocalyptic and kind of pre-apocalyptic, too, because there's hints of a new apocalypse on the horizon you know you know there's a genre called the cozy catastrophe and it was kind of john Wyndham is seen as the kind of main writer i'm actually sorry i'm simultaneously trying to find a name or something so john john Wyndham wrote um the chrysalids and day of the triffids and in his books they're rebuilding society so it's not as bleak there's and they it's become called in sci-fi circles the cozy catastrophe novel oh i never um, had that time i love it station 19 did you read that and it was a great book i read earlier this year and it's in a book it's about a traveling group of um players it's like a shakespearean group of players but it's set after a, a disease <laughs> oh not unlike covid has wiped out most of the earth and it's set about 20 years later they're going around playing shakespeare i am I am simultaneously trying to find the name of the writer because it was so good. Sorry, I'm getting it wrong. Station Eleven, a novel by Emily St. John Mandel. The society is beginning to reboot itself a bit. Whereas um, when we were younger, do you remember Threads, the TV show? 
Ooh. early TV. From... What year was Threat? I think it might have been a little bit before my time. It's like, so The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Like, there's no threads in The Road are like the bleakest you can get with kind of dystopia. And then everything else is like, you know, slightly greyer to like more optimistic. Have you read Why the Last Man? Do you read graphic novels or comics? Okay, not as much as I'd like to. It's something, because I love Adrian Tamin, and I always think... Oh, I love Adrian Tamin. I yeah. should do more of this, and I, I never do. But tell me. Yeah, I, I love I love Adrian Tamin. Um, he does these one... Like, he's actually the master of the graphic short story. But there's this series called Why the Last Man, and it's about a world in which all of the men die. And I think there's a number of novels that have kind of taken the premise more recently. But he was the first, the guy who did it in Why the Last Man. His name is Brian K. Vaughan, the writer. Um, and it's just a really amazingly worked out kind of dystopia because suddenly society has to be reordered. They don't know if there's ever going to be a next generation. And one man survives um, for unclear reasons. And his all, basically all male mammals die. And one man and his pet monkey survive. <laughs> and it's about these people, these other women trying to protect him and get him across America for reasons I can't quite remember. But the way they develop that world and show you what that world would be like and, you know, the pros and cons of that world is just really, really good. And again, it's another of these graphic novels, sci-fi books that has forever been in development as a TV show and may never see the light of day. Would you ever write science fiction or fantasy? I do. I do like, I, I've been writing short stories and they are in that kind of realm. Like, I find it really interesting because when I... Like, I love Margaret Atwood and Ursula Le Guin and um, I love Neil Gaiman and I love... I, I, I was meeting a friend of mine who's a really good short story writer and we were kind of trading stories... And he hates kind of fantastical elements. And um, and I, I kind of, I'm of the view, if you can throw a robot or a ghost in there, why not? <laughs> Whereas he's like, and I think it comes from my love of things like C.S. Lewis when I was younger. It was like, well, if you're, for me, like like I said, I read, like, for example, Fleischmann is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. And I really loved that. And that's a completely realist book. But there's just something in... The playfulness of how she tells it that that I kind of I can go with it, you know, in the same way I can with Muriel Spark. But we're or, right back to unreliable narrators, aren't we? Yeah. Oh, he's an amazing unreliable narrator. Narrator, because like as it goes on, you just realize what a shit he is. Can I sorry if I said a bad word? Um, it's all right. We're like, very sorry. Podcast is fine. Because <laughs> um, at the start, it's set up so you sympathize with him, and mm. then slowly it deconstructs around the edges. Um, but I'd have ruined that book by adding a robot or something <laughs> if I was writing it. And so so I think when I was a kid, I just loved the otherworldliness of fiction. And I, I read very widely. Um, but when I write myself, I've, I've been writing short stories over the last few years. I've had a few published in different places. I've tried all kinds of short stories and failed. But I've discovered that I can only really get behind it if there's something otherworldly in it. And I think it's partly because my day job is as... A journalist and a reporter and I kind of feel if I'm going to do the real world I'll just report on it. I was um, wondering about that whether there's too much fact in your in your day. I think that's it so I love doing reporting I love going places talking to people and then writing up a narrative based on that and when I started to write fiction I tried to imbue some of my fiction with some of that and it was just flat on the page because I the other thing I've realized doing non-fiction and fiction is they're very very different and stuff 
that works in one doesn't work in the other. Um, some things that work brilliantly in an article or an essay only work because they're true. And if there's any hint that they're false, it just falls apart, you know, whereas when you when you read fiction, there's you actually in a way, fiction needs to be more um, organized and thought through than nonfiction because people's bullshit detector goes up really mm. quickly and they go, could this really have happened? Whereas actually in real life, there's loads of things where you go, could that really have happened? Well, it literally just happened in front of me. Like the amount of interactions I've had where I, I, I've thought about it later and gone, um, I think in one of my essays in the book, I actually went, I have no idea what my thought process was back then. And if this was a short story and it was being workshopped, people would say, you need to think more about what your main character's motivation was. And I go, my, I was the main character in this and I have no idea what my motivation was. Because in real life, we do inexplicable things all the time. I remember that um, line and I wish I could remember what, which essay it was from. I don't know, because it, it really stayed with me. Um, well, it all really stayed with me. I loved it. But the essay you wrote about sort of working with like, vulnerable young adults um, in a care home, but also the one about um, working on, was it, oh, wasn't the Passion of the Christ, was it, when you were on the film set? Braveheart. Braveheart. I, in... <laughs> I knew it was Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah. So I was working as a dog's body in the kitchen for that film. So I was like washing dishes for hordes of extras. Um, I found it quite fun and interesting to rethink a lot of that stuff in my life and write about it. But you do realise that lots of things just happen. You try and put a narrative on them. And you, you do your best to kind of work out what does this mean? Why is this useful to the reader? Why is this helpful for the reader? Which is what you should do as a writer. But you can kind of, in a way, get away with more when you're writing nonfiction than fiction. In fiction, you need to constantly be thinking, does this make sense? Whereas I've reported on things and I've gone, none of this makes sense, but it happened. So you you write up the article and you send it in. Um, if you wrote it, for, to, for a fiction editor, they'd write back and go, this character in paragraph three makes no sense. You need to develop them more. And I'd be like, that's all I got. With, with your book and the essays within it, and also the way that is, you know, separate entities that could be enjoyed, you know, and more as individual pieces of work, but also really sort of hung together. And it's so interesting that you talk about ghosts because I think your book is one of the most genuinely sort of moving and comforting and authentic books I've read about grief and the way your friends exist in your book as friendly ghosts and that they're sort of, yeah. you know, they, they keep coming to life. Um, I think as your life kind of accumulates in your body, it's not chronological. There's things that um, from 20 years ago that stand out stronger to you than things that happened a year ago. And there are things, I'm sure you've had this experience talking to friends going, remember we did that thing last year? And they go, that was 15 years ago. <laughs> and like, because some things just become more prominent in your psychology or something. Um, and in that book, I mean, it's really like I used to be in bands and I write about it in the book. And one of the things I loved about putting the book together once I'd had written a lot of it was trying to think of it as an album. You know, so you, you structured it according to a little bit of his intuitive, a little bit is logical. You go, what type of song do I need next? And similarly with that book, I sometimes when I started structuring it, I had maybe two thirds of it written as individual essays. And so there was a little more of um, what do I need? Like when I was in a band, you'd go, 
we need a heavy song to go here, we need to go right one, or we need a slower song to go at this point, we need to go right one. And similarly, I did a little bit of that, where I was going, I need to explore this relationship a little bit more, or I've got, a, I've got something about my dad, I need to put something in about my mom, just to kind of balance it, and also so they wouldn't be annoyed with me. <laughs> and then, um, as you're doing it, you realise that, or I realise that, um, there's also kind of other memories kind of buried beneath the more prominent ones. That once you start excavating them, it triggers synapses in your head and you go, actually, that day, this other thing happened that I haven't thought about in years. Um, and that's actually really, really interesting, too. Like I wrote I have an essay about driving and it's kind of a series of vignettes because driving is really central to my life mm. because initially in bands, we'd be touring and you'd be driving with cars or the van. And as a journalist, I drive around a fair bit from town to town to, to cover things. And I wrote this essay. And again, I think I say it in the book and I had the whole thing written and nearly towards the end of my deadline for writing the book, I remembered that I'd been in a car crash when I was 13 and I hadn't thought about it or and, you know, prompting all this, uh, thinking about all these stories about driving eventually prompted that memory, which my whole family was in. It was very significant. My mother broke her leg, my um, granny broke her ribs I was terrified for years afterwards as a consequence of it I'd say in retrospect I had PTSD or something and yet it had gone completely out of my mind like if my parents had mentioned it I'd have gone oh yeah the car crash but when I sat down to write a story about driving it just totally slipped my mind that this significant story about driving could be put in or would be part of it, which really got me thinking about how our memory works. Like, I, I kind of realised that we remember more than we think. And also we remember things. I mean, this is the other feature of writing memoir is I, I sent a lot of the essays in progress to people who were involved in them, you know, and occasionally I just totally misremembered something. You know, it was very firm in my head mm. and I remembered people and we were all here in this place. And, you know, Dara, the, the bass player in my band, would go, no, we weren't. Uh, you were they, he'd have a completely different memory of it and I kind of re, had to kind of rewrite some things according to that because I had such a firm memory that was wrong and then at other times you'd remember a completely lost memory that you hadn't thought about in 20 years um, I kind of like I found it cathartic in a way to kind of realize how it was kind of like a little bit in, in the way I investigate stuff from my job it was a little bit like investigative reporting about my own brain you know you'd start going I'm, I'm starting to tell this story and as you were as I was writing it a whole flood of memories would come back that it's like it unlocked a bunch of stuff did you find that when you were writing yes and with um my book The Sisterhood which is about having five little sisters instead of being in a family yeah. there's that and again it's exactly what you were saying about I have really strong memories of, say, you know, the sister who's, like, closest in age to me. She probably comes off worst, and it's because we're so close in age and we have the most tension. And I'm like, but I don't want people to read it and think, oh, God, you know, she was awful, because it's very much about that sort of that fractious relationship. And, so, and also feeling, I suppose, a lot of responsibility about, you know, the stories I was allowed to tell you also start realizing that things aren't as clear cut as you thought. You know, as soon as you start thinking about stuff, you start going, "Okay, I thought I thought I was the hero of that story. It turns out I was a bit of a fool." And 
I kind of like I I read um another book I read this year that I should have read years ago um is Are You Somebody by Nuala Ofoelan, um she was like a, a big Irish journalist um in the kind of seventies eighties nineties, and and it's just like the, it that's a bit of a techno prisoners memoir like it's beautifully written really damning about Ireland I mean just as an aside it's not even her main point about what Ireland was like for women up until the 90s really and at the same time you just feel like she's pulling absolutely no punches and on one hand I don't know if I had any of those angry revenge fantasies that I wanted to actually write up but on the other I was really conscious writing it of was conscious of two things one one was what's fair to the people in the stories and the other is kind of what's useful for the reader. Mm. You know, like uh, I definitely wrote, um, there's a couple of essays, the, the essay on mental health, Brain Fever, that I wrote. The original version of that I wrote a lot earlier than the rest of the book. And it was far too raw. Like, I don't think it was fair to myself. Like, it was kind of, uh, it was neither fair to the reader or myself because it was just like, it was like too painful and painful in a way that wasn't really digested and helpful to anyone to read it. Mm. And I kind of, one, that was one of the things I realised reading. Um, I read Emily Pine's Notes to Self. Emily's a friend of mine, actually, but I, I just loved her book. But I also loved the sense of safety I felt in her hands as a narrator. Like, I felt like she was guiding the reader through these difficult things that had happened. But you always knew that she was pretty together and had a, a control over them and that she wasn't she was writing them from a distance and she wasn't just bathing you in her pain, which I, I think sometimes younger writers are encouraged to do. Yeah. I don't think it's helpful to them, you know. Um, so when I came to writing my stuff, I wanted readers to feel that. I, I wanted readers to know that um, I was writing this to entertain them. Like the, the rules of thumb I had was the essays had to be either entertaining or helpful or both was kind of what I realized I was I was doing. And sometimes writing about painful stuff is not helpful to the reader, you know, unless you can go, here's my pathway through it or here's what I learned from it. And yeah, and, and and I left stuff out that felt undigested. Like I'd sometimes go back and I'd go, okay, I don't really know what I'm saying here, so I don't think I'll put that in. I wrote other essays as well that I felt were um that there's a there's a good faith thing in nonfiction writing. You need to be you need to be as reliable a narrator as you can be, even though you're always a little unreliable, and that should be acknowledged in memoir. Um I wrote one essay which wasn't too painful, but it was too preachy. Like I, I kinda had this feeling towards the end that maybe I need to write an essay that explains to people where I'm coming from politically and um and it was the most I just I reread it again recently and oh I'm so glad I didn't put that in it was just it was like preachy and it was also kind of it was kind of written in bad faith or something it was like me going here's a bunch of things I believe and it, it felt like me climbing on top of a mountaintop to proclaim my views on the universe and I kind of realized that if that my views in the universe aren't kind of just implied in my story in the, the way I've told the story, then they shouldn't just come out in a. And I think they are. I think you can kind of see my worldview in a lot of those essays. Um, so I didn't really need to kind of proclaim on a mountaintop. Here's what I believe. Here's how to be a good person. Here's a bad person. I think that's so interesting, you know, because as you say, it's that gratuitous in the sense of being 
extra and I can see why it was so tempting to put that in there because we live in this time now where there's so much virtue signaling that we're barely conscious of and we're all encouraged to do it and there's something especially about Twitter where you're like well such is the world that if I don't say look I am a good person then people are going to assume and I'm going to get cancelled but something and it's interesting because I do think there are two sides of this and there are books that I love. Um, I have just talked about her on the podcast. But I'm a really big fan of um, Kat Marnell's memoir, um, okay. How to Murder Your Life. And what I loved about that was it's not a resolved story. She's not like, and then I sorted my life out and all these terrible things happened and everything was fine. She's still in the mess of it. But you don't feel so worried about her or responsible for her or alarmed by it that it's sort of, it is unsettling. And there are definitely some books where you think, oh, I, I feel like you're, this is too soon and you need to step away and digest this and then then go yeah. on and explore it. But um, I love Zadie Smith and I've been talking a lot about intimations. and that. And I know that, I have to get that because I, I, I think I'd really like that. And I heard you talking about it on the podcast. And it's short. It's so short. <laughs> it's short. <laughs> is it six essays or something? I think something so. Really yeah, it's a lovely cool. brief. You can knock it off in the afternoon. Uh, but And I suppose it's much more that her writing does tend to be a sort of an authentic opinion rather than being more memoir. But it's it's just, I don't know any other writers that are so sober or curious or grounded. It's like, it's the opposite of a rant. She's so elegant and so measured and yet manages mm. to be so funny and lively. And she's just such a pleasure to be with always. The other uh, memoir I read that I loved recently and I and I'd read nothing by her and I picked it up kind of because I liked the cover and it was The Cost of Living by Deborah Levy. Deborah oh, and, and, and again, that's a book where uh, like the one you mentioned, I don't think anything is resolved and it's not like and I don't think she has an agenda. Um, but it was such a beautiful read and it's about her life. It's basically a pretty poetic but straightforward account of her life after marriage separation. Really short, which, as you know, I love. And I sat down, I picked it up in a bookshop in town because I liked the cover and subsequently read a bunch of her other books. And I just think she's I, I just I can't even define why she's so good. But I sat down on the couch in our front room and I read it in one sitting and I just found it beautiful. There's a certain kind of writer that I just can't even figure out what they're doing. You know, I can't even define why that had such an effect on me. And the, like the opposite extreme, a totally different kind of writer. If I read someone like Ray, Ray Bradbury, like there's writers that make me want to read and there's writers that make me want to read and that's Deborah Levy. And then there's writers that make me want to write and say Ray Bradbury's a writer that makes me want to write. I read his short stories and it's like punk rock. You kind of go three chords. You can get you can get this down. One good idea, fly with it, it'll be good. Go, Trust me, it'll be good. That's the feeling with Ray Bradbury. When I read The Cost of Living, I go, why am I bothering to re- write? I just need to sit here reading for the rest of my life and just find the right books because there's an indefinable quality in the writing and in the honesty um, and in the lack of agenda, I think, which is kind of the opposite of what I was talking about with that essay I wrote that I didn't include, I'm glad I didn't include. It had such an agenda. It was like hitting the reader over the head with an agenda. Cost of Living was the exact opposite. It was like, here's just this pure, honest, beautiful bit of prose about something real, but 
how much of the reality is there, I don't know. I don't know how much she left out, how much she put in, which I think is the other thing in memoir, like what you leave out mm. can make it brilliant. <laughs> like cutting things can sometimes make an essay way better. And with the cost of living, I felt, OK, she's probably leaving out a fair bit, but this is beautiful. Is there anything that we've not talked about or any books we haven't mentioned that you like to mention? I like to mention my wife's book. I thought Because it's might. awesome. Tell <laughs> us uh, about the building for Betty. Yeah, it's um, a book set during the 1913 lockout in Dublin, which is a big, big strike. So it's a book about activism and class politics. But for uh, it's a 13 year old protagonist and she's brilliant. And it's kind of back to what we were saying earlier about books that have a lot to say, but have pace and wit and it's kind of the opposite of a hard read. It's just a beautiful, fluid read about something brilliant um i also love graphic novels you kind of touched on them kids books sci-fi and graphic novels <laughs> seem to be where i land and the loads of the things with with those genres is that they're kind of like with graphic novels they're the books i read when i am stressed you know we're talking about the lockdown mm. um going back to older kids books or not even kids books but things like douglas adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Adrian Mole. These are books I go back to all the time because when I read them, it also takes me back to when I was younger and it makes me think a lot about how I've changed, which mm. is the fascinating thing about reading books you read so long ago. Um, but it's easy and it's comforting because you know you like the book. And the other one that I find when I'm stressed and in this pandemic was going back to old graphic novels like uh, like Adrian Tamine or... Um, uh, Daniel Klaus, who's brilliant, or Neil Gaiman's Sandman graphic novels, you know, which I read when I was a teenager as well. And there's something about the pictures that soothe you as you're reading the text. So it's just if you get into graphic novels, they're def. I just definitely think they're like a, a good when times are bad thing to read because there's something more um, visceral and less thinky about Pictures plus the words. Huge thanks to Patrick. Okay, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea is out now. It's published by Penguin. It's a form of steal of the week. It will break you down and put you back together again. It's the perfect present for anyone who hasn't been reading and misses it. You'll start with one essay, ease yourself in gently, and suddenly you'll look up and the sun will have gone down. If it doesn't make you laugh, you have no soul. If it doesn't make you weep, seek medical attention. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at Booked, and if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you left us a five-star review. It helps new listeners to find the podcast. Find a list of all the books mentioned by Patrick on acast.com slash booked. Finally, I leave you with this from Nina Stibby. There's always a lot of autobiography in fiction, and fiction in autobiography. It has to be that way, otherwise they'd be unreadable, except by the author. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 